0: We are continuing in our series uh, on the parables and before I, I jump in here, um, I'm so grateful for Pastor Dylan and Bill Spencer bringing the word the last couple of weeks. Can we thank them, church, for doing such an incredible job. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to see what God is doing um, in our midst and it was a privilege to speak in the high school ministry a couple of weeks ago Uh, We had some fun down there. It was great. Let me me ask you, how many of you have ever heard um, an objection to Christianity like this? I respect Jesus. I respect the teachings of Jesus. I mean, he taught on love and mercy and forgiveness and and all of that. So I respect that. I respect Jesus. But I can't believe in a God that would allow room for the existence of hell. How many of you ever heard an objection like that? Okay. So, what's interesting is there's a slight problem with that position. Because Jesus didn't just give revolutionary teachings on love, mercy, and forgiveness. He lived love, mercy, and forgiveness. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. And yet, Jesus, while he's teaching and living out love, mercy, and forgiveness... He tied his teachings on love so intricately with the doctrine of hell, you actually can't have any level of intellectual integrity and say, I respect Jesus, but I can't believe in a God that would allow room for hell. It's actually intellectually dishonest to hold that position. And in essence, that position says, I am more compassionate, more loving, and more justice oriented than Jesus is. And I'll show you why this argument doesn't hold up. And I also want you to see today that the doctrine of hell, we we don't think about this, but the doctrine of hell actually gives you the power to be a far more loving person, a far more forgiving person, a far more merciful person than you would be otherwise. If you brought your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, the parable that we're looking at today in Luke, it's, um, it's not a traditional parable in that typically you have, uh, in the parables that Jesus tells, you have a, a God figure, you have a figure that represents uh, humanity or the devil or the world, and this parable is not traditional in that sense, uh, but you'll see how this applies to us as we, as we go through it. So Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19 Jesus says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father... From the dead. There is so much going on in this story. Uh, And and first off, uh, the the danger with the parables is that if you don't understand uh, the the, the truth that the parable is pointing at, the the parables can be very easily misinterpreted. So let me just clarify this right out the gate. The, the, The point of this parable is not that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Okay, and everybody said amen. Okay, so th- that, that's not the point of the parable. So what is Jesus' point? Well, there's a lot to extract here. One of the first things that we see that's unique in this parable from all the other parables is that in all the other parables, the characters that are representing somebody else, they, they're, they're identified by a title or a description. So it's always... Um, The landowner, or the vine dresser, or a father, or a son, or a brother—that it's always a description or a, a title of somebody, but it's never a name except here, except in this parable, Jesus gives the poor man a name, and we know his name. His name is Lazarus. And in contrast, the rich man, the other character in the story, remains nameless. Why is that? And why in the world does one of them go to hell and the other go to paradise, to Abraham's side? Well, first, let's start with the rich man. Because you might say, oh, I, I, I think I could figure out why the rich man went to hell. He probably acquired his wealth through unethical means, like maybe it was insider trading or embezzlement or money laundering, or maybe he was a drug lord, for goodness sake. I mean, we don't know. So... so Maybe that's why he went to hell, but the passage doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us why. It just says he was a rich man. But then if you look at Lazarus, the name Lazarus, interestingly enough, means God is my help. That's what his name means. And here's what this tells us. What lands someone in hell is not being rich or being poor what lands somebody in hell is where your help comes from. Where does your help come from? It's what you look to for your salvation, for your value. It's what you're building your identity on. It's what you're building your life upon. And the reason why the rich man does not have a name, he remains nameless, is because a rich man is all that he was. All that he had in life, his identity, his value, his salvation was found in the fact that he was wealthy. He received his comforts in this life. He was building his own kingdom, and his wealth was his help. It was the epicenter and foundation of his life. This is why Abraham says in verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. In other words, you got what you wanted. You were after money, you were after wealth, you were after your own comfort. And when you take away the riches from the rich man, there's nothing left to him. There's no substance, there's no depth, there's no resilience, there's no identity. It's just hollow. He's a rich man with no riches. But a person whose help is the Lord. You can take away... Every worldly possession, comfort, or pleasure. And in the end, they still have the Lord. He is the only one that you can have now that will remain through eternity. Right, You take away all the possessions, all the pleasures, all of the things that, that we build our lives on in this life, all the worldly things, you can take all of those away, and if Christ is your help, in the end, you still have Christ. You're still a person of substance. Your riches will fade. Your reputation will fade. I hate to break this to you, but your looks will fade. Your pos- like, it will all pass away. And in the end, if the Lord is your help, you will still be a person of steadiness, a person of resilience, a person of character. But if we look to other things in this world to be our help, in the end, we will be a rich man with no riches, an influential person with no influence, a beauty queen with no beauty. See, Jesus is telling us today Through this parable, make me your help. Let me be your help. Forsake all other loves and center your life on me, and you'll have a name. You'll be a person of substance. You'll be a person of steadiness that circumstances in this life cannot touch, good or bad. You'll be a person of of resilience and character and substance or else in the end, you will find yourself utterly empty, hollow, and devoid of substance, significance, and meaning. So make me your help. That's the invitation. And the question for us, for you today, is what is your help? What are you most tempted to look to for comfort when circumstances you find yourself in are difficult or painful? You say, well, it'll, it'll be okay because at least I have money. Or it'll be okay, at least I, I have this relationship over here. Or it's okay, at least, at least I'm a mom. I have, I have my kids. Or I, I have my house. I, I, at least I have fill in the blank. What are you most tempted to look to to be your help other than God. And the question is, is there anything wrong with those things? Is there anything wrong with being a mom? Is there anything wrong with being wealthy? Is there anything wrong with these things? And the answer is no. But it's when you take the good things in life and turn them into ultimate things. That's what's wrong. That's called what the Bible calls idolatry. You're centering your life on something that is going to twist and disorient and distort the rest of your life. Another way to say it is is there's nothing wrong with being attractive. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy or successful or having a good reputation or influence. There's nothing wrong with being any of those things. But the question is, is that all you are? Is that your source of help? Now, what's amazing to me is that what Jesus tells us about hell and those who are in it, what he tells us in this passage, the whole idea of the objection of how could a loving God send people to hell, to a, a place of constant torment. How could God do that? Well, we'll look at verse 24. If, if you're familiar with that objection, maybe you've had that objection, look at what happens at verse 24. Uh, he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you see what the rich man does not ask for. Like if that were you or me and you're in Hades and you have a chance to talk with Abraham and Lazarus and they're there and you're gonna ask for anything. What are you asking for? Get me out of here. here. Have mercy on me. I want to leave. This is awful. I want to go away. But he doesn't do that. He says, This is just amazing to me. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. What the rich man, he doesn't ask, get me out of here. What does he ask for? Because he doesn't just ask for a little drop of water. What does he ask for? He says, send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. Oh, that, that nobody that was outside of my gate for all those years that I had to step over in order to go about my business and earn all my wealth, that, that, that poor beggar out there, get him to do my bidding. I, I, I'm more important than he is. I, I shouldn't be here, he should. And so I, I want you to, to send that nobody to go get me some water, go fetch. Do you see the coldness and the hollowness of this man? He is still operating out of a power dynamic that is long gone. He is operating out of self-importance and pride. All I want is a little drop of water, but I I don't wanna leave here. I don't want anything to change about. I want you to get Lazarus to do my bidding. I've got more wealth than him, more influence than him. I'm more powerful than he is. He belongs here. I don't. So send him. Give me a, a little drop of water. I love C.S. Lewis's writings on the topic of hell. This is what Lewis writes. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it in this life. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And the grumbling mood, it always begins with an unchecked self-absorption a self-centeredness. And the more centered you are on yourself, the more proud you are, the more disdainful of others you become, the more distorted your life becomes and the louder the grumble gets. And the attitude is, well, everybody else is wrong, I alone am am right. It's everybody else's fault that my life isn't going the way I want it to. I'm I'm a martyr, I'm a victim here. Everybody else is wrong. Uh, uh, nothing goes right for me. And it's not my fault. It's everybody else's fault. And, and you know what that is? According to Lewis, it's the, that is the grumbling mood that will grow in you until there is no you left at all. All you'll have in the end is a bitter, self-justifying, prideful grumble that will become hell if there is not repentance. That is hell. See, Lewis also says the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Like, just think about this. How unloving would it be for God to look at somebody who has spent their entire life trying to get away from him and he looks at them in the end and says, you know, I know you don't want to be with me at all, but I'm gonna force you to come and join me for all eternity in heaven. How unloving would that be? Right, God God is essentially looking, he's saying, In the end, I'll give you what you want. You want to spend eternity separated from me? That's your choice. I don't want that for you, but that's your choice. Lewis also writes, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And if we're so adamant to get away from God, in the end, he will simply give you what you want. He will not force his way into your life, and he will not force you into his life. So the rich man in Hades, number one, he doesn't ask to leave. Number two, is ordering Lazarus around and then says, well, if you won't send him to give me a drop of water, then do what? What does he say? Verse 27. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now this is, there's a lot here, but there's, there's sort of this passive-aggressive thing that he's doing with God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, you didn't give me enough information. <laughs> he's blaming God. He's saying, you, you didn't send somebody from the dead to warn me about hell, And so because you didn't do that, that's why I'm here. It's your fault. It's your fault that I'm here. I'm not asking to leave. I don't want it to change, but it's your fault. And if only you had sent somebody to warn me, then I would have gotten it, but you didn't do enough. And the fact that Jesus is the one telling this parable, the one sent from God to rescue humanity from eternity separated from him, it's pretty ironic. But see, if it's true that hell begins with a grumbling mood in us that pride that self-justification that self-exaltation and that goes on through eternity then hell what this tells us is that hell is the inevitable outcome of an identity built on anything other than god and see the question how could a loving god allow a place like hell to exist my question is how could he not How could he not? I'm just gonna nerd out on you theologically for a minute here. Universalism, okay? Universalism, uh, Universalism is the belief that all of humankind will eventually be saved, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they behave, regardless of how they conduct themselves, right? Regardless of their beliefs or behavior, Jesus is just gonna let everybody into his heaven in the end anyway. Because a God of love would never condemn anybody to an eternity of torment. Let me just pose a question. Let's suppose, um, let's suppose somebody did something horrendous, unthinkable to one of your family members. Maybe a, a sibling or a child or your spouse or even a parent. Somebody did something horrendous and unthinkable to them and somebody came up to you right afterwards and says, well, God is a God of love, so he's gonna let everybody in in the end anyway. I promise you, you would not be thinking, wow, God is so loving. You would be thinking, if that's the way God is, he's not a God worth worshiping. You'd be thinking... That's the most unjust, unloving thing that God could possibly do. The doctrine of hell, listen, the doctrine of hell is actually not only incredibly fair and just, it makes God far more loving, not less. Because in the the end, it tells you that God is going to right every wrong. That there is a sense of justice in this life. That there is a sense of fairness and justice, that God is a God of judgment and he's going to right every injustice. But if there is no sense of judgment, if there is no doctrine of hell and God is just going to let everybody in anyway, there is no judgment, there is no justice, you would look at a God can we all just agree that's not even a God worth worshiping? See, universalism falls apart on top of all of that. The doctrine of hell gives you an ability to be far more loving, forgiving, and merciful than if there was no doctrine of hell in the first place. Look at this. In April of 2017, there were two bombings in churches in Egypt. So Christian churches in Egypt, two bombings went off and killed uh, 43 people. Okay? These are sons, daughters, parents, spouses, siblings, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, like 43 people were killed in these bombings. ISIS took credit for it. And immediately after, uh, a Muslim reporter showed up and began doing interviews with uh, the, the survivors. And there was one woman that he interviewed, and as he's interviewing her, uh, she, she looks at the camera and she begins to speak to the people who were taking credit for it. And she had lost multiple people, she lost her spouse. And and so she looks at the camera and she says, uh, "For for you who are taking credit for this, I want you to know I forgive you. I forgive you, and I pray that God would forgive you. I don't hate you. In fact, you sent my husband to a place that I've only ever dreamed of. So I forgive you." And the camera pans over to the reporter and he's just standing there dumbfounded, completely silent for at least 20 seconds. And eventually he looks up at the camera with tears in his eyes and he says this, Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Who has the power to forgive like this? I'll tell you who. Someone that believes that God is a God of justice Somebody that knows and understands that one day God is gonna right every wrong. Because if that's not true of, of God, who, whose responsibility then is it to enact justice? If God is not a God of ultimate justice in the end, whose, responsi- whose shoulders does justice or vengeance or judgment fall on? It's on us. And if it's on us, I mean, just think about this, if something were to happen to my children or my wife, God forbid, and I don't believe that God is going to make everything right one day. What will I do? What are my options? They're not good ones. See, universalism, the belief that oh, God is just going to save everybody no matter what they believe. God is a God of love. He would never He would never allow somebody to spend eternity separated from Him. That is the most unloving belief system. That is the most unloving thing because it says you can murder, you can rape, you can pillage, you can use and abuse anyone and everyone, and you're going to heaven anyway. Can we all agree that that's not a God worth worshiping? Only if God is a God of judgment, then and only then do you have the power to look at somebody who has wronged you or wrong somebody you love in some horrendous way to look at them and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I pray that God forgives you. Because he is a God of justice. And he is going to bring judgment one day. And I don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation. See, knowing that God is a God of justice, knowing and understanding the doctrine of hell, it frees you to, to be far more forgiving and it makes God more loving, not less. And the less you understand the doctrine of hell, you can't understand how loving God actually is. I, I want you to see this from another angle in the passage. What does the rich man ask Abraham for uh, for his five brothers? Uh, verse 30. It said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So send Lazarus back from the dead, and, and they will believe if, if you send them. And, and our reaction to this well, is, of course. Of course. If somebody rose from the dead and, and came and said, hey, hell exists. Your brother's there and he sent me to tell you that you do, really don't want to go there. You'd go, oh man. Like these guys, if he actually did that, these guys would be, I better get my act together. Like hell is real. Our brother's there. We got to figure this out. Right, And and the irony is that Jesus raised a man from the dead. His name is also Lazarus, by the way. And what happened as a result is the Pharisees not only became more fervent and committed to their scheming to not only kill Jesus, but now also kill Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. They didn't believe. They were just more adamant about murdering both of them. Right? And on top of that, Jesus himself was raised from the dead and even a resurrection of a man that they murdered was not enough to get them to believe. And, and look what Abraham says to his request. He said to him, verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying here, and this is very important, what Jesus is saying here is that the fear of hell is not enough to save you or even change you. Why? Because it's still all about you. It's just a different form of self-absorption, (laughs) self-preservation. The fear of hell is not enough to save you or change you. Your heart won't change because it's still all about you. You'll do exactly what the Pharisees did. You will use God to justify yourself. You will use self-willed morality in order to justify yourself before God. But in that dead religious behavior, reaction to the fear of hell, you know what happens? There is no joy in God. There's no delight in him. You don't love him. You love yourself. You're just using him as a get out of hell free card. There's no delight in God. There's no beauty of the gospel. There's no joy in God. You're just preserving your own life. There's no peace. It's a life saturated with fear. Because on top of all of that, you have no guarantees that you being good enough is ever going to be good enough. In fact, Scripture tells you that you're good enough is not even close to good enough. Right? And, and as you live in that paradigm, your heart is only going to become colder and colder toward God and more disdainful toward other people that aren't trying as hard as you are. You understand the beginnings? Th- this is the beginnings of hell, not the avoidance of it. And you say, well, that's terrifying. So how, how does our heart change? How do we actually change? H- here's the thing th- that is what Jesus brings to the table that's a radical shift because the fear of hell will not change you. What will? Radical, sacrificial love. It is the only thing that will restructure the motivations of your heart. It's the only thing that can deliver you from what this is is talking about. I want you to see this. So he points to uh, verse 29, uh, Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the writings of Moses and the prophets, what you find is not only that the Messiah would suffer, but you discover why he would suffer. And listen, you will never understand how much Jesus loves you unless you understand how much he suffered for you. I love love the parables because Jesus adds these just little details that are so easy to miss. Um... And I'd never seen this before. In Luke 16, 19, I want you to see how Jesus describes the rich man. Verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Why did Jesus say that? I mean, he's making up the story. Why is he saying that there was a rich man clothed in purple? Well, purple, uh, many of you probably know that purple uh, is a symbol of royalty or wealth or power. Okay, so the rich man is clothed in royalty, in power, in splendor, in wealth, and he leveraged all of those things for his own comfort, for his own benefit, and to distance himself from suffering. Okay. But as I read that, I just go, I wonder if there's any other places in Scripture where Jesus is clothed in purple. I want you to see this. Mark 15 it says, and they clothed him, Jesus, in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. John 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. See, the rich man, clothed in royalty, splendor, and power, leveraged all of those things for himself. But here you have the King of heaven and earth being mocked, the one who truly had wealth, splendor, royalty, all of those things, who did not reserve those things for himself, a God that was in need of nothing, the king of all things, the one in whom and through whom all things consist, did not reserve his royalty, his wealth, his power for himself, but instead traded his very life for the poor beggar laying outside of his gate. Jesus left heaven to take on the suffering of the beggar so that you and I, the beggars outside of the gate could have a seat at his table. See, do you see the love of Jesus for you in this story? You see what he went through for you? We're all, every single one of us, we are all outside of the gate, laying down, sick with the disease of sin, on our way to an eternity separated from God. We're sick with sin, we're clamoring for the scraps of this world, anything that will satisfy our hunger, and Jesus who is the only one with true wealth, laid it all down on the cross. He took on hell itself, became sin in our place so that you and I wouldn't have to beg for the scraps, but so that you and I would be able to become sons and daughters of the king of the universe. And why did Jesus speak about hell more than anybody else in scripture combined? Here's why. He was revealing to us what he was about to take upon himself. What he was about to endure so that you and I could be saved. How could a loving God send people to hell? Listen, we were born on our way to hell. Jesus provided the only alternative. He came along and laid it all down so that we would have another option. So that we wouldn't have to be separated from him eternity. Jesus Christ, God in Jesus Christ took on hell itself for you. He endured hell itself for you. He saw us in our helpless state and all of our sickness and sin. All of the moments that we take earthly things and turn them into ultimate things, all of our spiritual poverty, he took it all upon himself so that we could enter into the mansion. So that we could have a seat at the table instead of begging for scraps that would fall from the table. So that we would have a home. And on the cross, Jesus looks out at every single one of us and says, every ounce of my suffering, every flogging, every time someone spit on me or mocked me, when they put the crown of thorns upon me, Every ounce of my suffering was for you. It's for you. Because I love you more than you could ever imagine. I am so for you. And I want you to know the depth of my love and how far I'll go for you. Does that not do something in your heart Doesn't it just disorient your selfishness a little bit? God, you did that for me. Of all people. Doesn't it motivate you to just throw yourself at his feet and say, thank you. Thank you. And so this morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table. Where he has invited us. And we're going to say thank you to the King of Glory. As our elders and pastors and ushers are preparing the elements, uh, the ushers are going to prepare to dismiss you row by row. And um, as we come to the Lord's table or prepare for communion, communion is a sacrament, it's an act of obedience to Christ. And Jesus commands us to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of a God that laid down his very life so that we wouldn't have to spend eternity separated from him. And maybe you find yourself in a place today where you've doubted or you've wandered from God in some way. And our hope, our prayer for you is that you would allow communion today to serve as a step toward God and and deepening your trust in him. And if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christ follower, I wanna invite you to forego communion this morning. This is uh, an act, a sacred act of obedience for those who believe, those who have surrendered their lives to him. I wanna let you know uh, we do have gluten-free crackers if uh, if you need that or wanna take advantage of that. And as you take the elements today, I wanna invite you to hold on to the bread and the cup until the very end of service. And I'll come back up and lead us and we'll partake collectively as the family of God. And as we come to the table today, I wanna invite you to stand in awe of a God that forsook everything. He forsook everything to trade places with the poor beggars laying outside of the gate. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a God even though you had every right to distance yourself from us. Even though you had every right to walk out your gate and step over the poor beggar. God, instead you traded places with him so that he might go into your mansion, find healing and wholeness, salvation. And God, you took on his suffering to make a way for salvation. And God is every single one of us as the poor beggars laying outside of the gate. God, today, we see that you laid it all down for us so that we would be rid of the disease of sin, so that our selfishness and self-absorption would be dealt with, and so that we would have the freedom, not just to be welcomed in as servants, but to be given a seat at the table of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. We say thank you today. We worship you, and we remember your sacrifice through your body and your blood. In Jesus' name. Amen, church. Let's go ahead and stand. The ushers will dismiss you row by row.